This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Vanessa Beattie, thank you for joining me in the trenches. All right, thank you so much for inviting me on. It's really good to be here. I metaphorically said the trenches, but quite <laughs> literally, that's where you are. Um, yeah, I mean, there aren't so many trenches now as there were, for example, uh, pre-2018. Um, I started coming to Syria in 2016. Uh, and since then, I've been coming pretty regularly, like every couple of months. And I have been on a number of the front lines um, during the liberation campaigns by the Syrian Arab army and allies um, to rid entire urban areas and, um, you know, areas of Syrian countryside of Western-backed terrorist groups euphemistically called rebels by Western media. Vanessa, what is your bio? Um, basically, uh, I kind of grew up uh, in an environment where my father was um, one of the most foremost Arabists of his time. He was Middle East advisor to Ernest Bevan post Second World War. Um, when there was a very small window of opportunity to stop the Truman Doctrine of effectively settling um, Jewish refugees in Palestine, which of course led to the Nakba in 1948, and has led, as my father um, instructed at the time, it has led to decades of bloody conflict in the region. So I kind of grew up in that environment. My father supported Palestine all of his life, lectured on Palestine even after he retired in 1969. He was British ambassador to Cairo um, in 67. Uh, Nasser actually invited him or asked for him to come back to Egypt to negotiate the peace deal after the Six Day War. Um, and fast forward to 2012, I kind of decided to abandon my corporate career, which wasn't really going anywhere anyway, because I wasn't very interested in it. And I headed off back to Egypt and then into Gaza. I entered Gaza by the tunnels, um, having been refused entry at the Rafa crossing in Egypt. And actually at the Rafa crossing, I met Eva Bartlett, a colleague of mine who then became one of my best friends. and with whom uh, I've worked on various issues, including Palestine and Syria, Donbass, uh, Ukraine, uh, Yemen, etc. Um, so it, it kind of went from there. I entered Gaza a few days before the Israeli bombing of 2012. So having entered by the tunnels, there was no exit because I didn't officially have a visa, although I had permission from Hamas to be there. And as Israel was bombing the tunnels, it was not considered a great idea to leave. And I didn't want to leave anyway. I didn't want to jump ship um, when I was there in solidarity with the Palestinians, uh, particularly those in Gaza that are living in an open air prison, um, deprived of virtually everything by the Zionist uh, regime, including food, energy, water, etc. Um, and then after that, we, we kind of, 
I guess, um, realized that something was up with the narrative uh, with regards to Syria and we, uh, or Eva actually started the Syria Solidarity Movement, which I joined. And then the rest is history. I kind of ended up going to Syria, as I said, in 2016. Um, I was also reporting on Yemen from 2015 in March when the Saudi aggression started, which also, of course, has connections to the US, neocolonialism, Israel, the UAE, all the same enemies as those uh, funding the terrorist regime change war uh, in Syria. And really, I guess, um, you know, that that entire um, part of my life just became all of my life at that point, because once you actually see what in particular my country, the UK, is doing in the world, it's impossible to unsee it. Um, and if you have the opportunity to bear witness to the crimes they're committing against sovereign nations, then without sounding very pompous, I just feel um, that, that that's what we should be doing is to reveal the reality as opposed to um, the government-aligned media narratives that are only there to shore up British foreign policy, of course. So basically what you're saying, Vanessa, is that you don't really know what you're talking about. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> I just so, make it up as I go along. Isn't that what journalists do? <laughs> well, it's what we've come to expect from the likes of the BBC and CNN, yeah. <laughs> so right now you're in Damascus, which is the capital of Syria. Yeah. Yes. Do, do you know what's on? ironic is that everybody right now probably knows exactly what a Ukrainian flag looks like because they all have it in their profile. How many mm. of those people know what a Syrian flag looks like? I can probably count them on one hand. Oh, well, they might know what the uh, French colonial flag looks like, which, of course, is the flag that is uh, vaunted by Western media as being the one of freedom and democracy in Syria. <laughs> they, they might know what that one looks like um, with the three stars. But no, very few will have any idea of what um, the Syrian flag looks like. There's something really, really sad about that. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think what I find even sadder is the fact that people, um, they don't realize that Syria is fighting not only a military war, but it's, it's fighting a war on all fronts. It's fighting actually the same hybrid war that has been waged against the people in the global north during the COVID project. When you look at you know what has basically been brought into effect through the COVID project, it's hybrid war against domestic populations by the governments that have been waging those kind of wars, um, multi-spectrum wars against sovereign nations in the global south for decades. Um, you know the the uh, imposing of sanctions, and in Syria we have unprecedented sanctions which were brought in under the Trump administration, for example, under the Caesar law a totally fraudulent um, pretext uh, that was sort of concocted in the halls of MI6 and CIA um, to introduce a, a, a sanction um, regime which effectively punishes any country that comes to the aid of Syria. So, for example, even after the earthquake tragedy 
um, countries were in the beginning, apart from those that had obviously taken um, or, or joined the axis of resistance to neocolonialism, um, but many EU countries, for example, were afraid to come or to, in a sense, collaborate with the Syrian government in order to provide humanitarian aid for the Syrian people that live in the 80% of territory that is under the protection of the Syrian government. And the UK and the US, of course, was flooding the Northwest, which is controlled by Al-Qaeda, the US uh, asset in, in Syria that has been admitted by email to Hillary Clinton, by Jake Sullivan, and later by Ambassador Jeffries, who was um, Mike Pompeo's kind of point man on Syria when he described Al-Qaeda as a US asset. Um, so the money, the funding, um, the equipment, the aid, is all pouring into an area, a pocket of Syria that's controlled by Al-Qaeda. But the majority of Syria was completely neglected even after a humanitarian tragedy like the earthquake on February the 6th, double earthquake actually. So if you don't mind, Vanessa, just for the sake of contextualization, take me back to 2011 more or less to when all of this started. Well, <laughs> actually, it all started an awfully long time before that. 2011. <laughs> okay, go back as far as you need. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't do the whole 75 years, but, you know, what I think people now are starting to get a better handle on, on basically, I hope they are, especially after COVID and after Ukraine and so on, people I think should realize um, the hypocrisy and the criminality um, of the West collectively, right? And when we go back to, and I really won't go into all the detail, but when we go back to Syria's independence from France in 1946, that basically, and that was hard fought for, by the way, you know, the Syrians rose up against the French in 1925 and then in 1946, they finally achieved independence, but not without a lot of pushback from the French. Um, and from that point onwards, the MI6 uh, and CIA um, basically carried out multiple clandestine military operations, black ops, regime change operations. I think in the 10 years after the independence, there were, there were a ridiculous number of regime changes <laughs> inside Syria. Um, and then sort of fast forward uh, to the rule of Hafez al-Assad, who was the father of Bashar al-Assad, who came um, <clears throat> uh, to the presidency in 2000. Um, but Hafez al-Assad, of course, was a great believer, as was Gamal Abdul Nasser in Egypt, of pan-Arabism. You know, complete anathema <laughs> to, to particularly U.S. unipolarity. But when I'm talking about U.S. Um, power, of course, I, I tend to see the U.K. as very much the power behind the throne. Um, the city of London, the, the intelligence operations uh, in the UK, and the UK is effectively, and in my opinion, and it's pretty well evidenced, has run the intelligence operations against Syria for some time, for many years, including from 2011 onwards. Um, there are a number of uh, WikiLeaks documents, uh, leaked CIA documents, 
that demonstrate that the Muslim Brotherhood, which was really a UK um, creation in Egypt in the late 20s anyway, presented as the political arm of uh, Islam, uh, and but really um, terrorists in suits that have been weaponized by the West for a number of um, decades, basically to overturn what they perceive as either communist or socialist governments, governments that are daring to be independent from, um, as I said, the, the um, US compliance regimes. Um, and basically, under Hafez al-Assad, there, there, there was at least one uprising by the Muslim Brotherhood, which was almost a mirror copy of what happened in 2011. And in 1982, Hafez al-Assad put the uprising down. And of course, that was uh, described in Western media as being a massacre in Hama. In reality, I think 2,000 Muslim Brotherhood um, uh, terrorists were killed in Hama or extremists. And nothing is ever said about uh, the lead up to 1982 when there were a huge number of suicide bombings, assassinations. Um, there was one famous story of the massacre in the Aleppo cadet um, <clears throat> school where actually uh, Muslim Brotherhood were going to assassinate Alawite. Now, for people to understand, um, Syria is a diverse secular country. Um, it is portrayed in Western media that the Alawites are the ruling class and they are a sect of uh, Muslim uh, origin or Islamic origin. In reality, um, you know, the army, the institutions, the fire brigade, the civil defense, the government, are made up of every single ethnic minority in Syria. So you will find Christians, you will find Armenian Christians, you will find Yazidi, you will find Druze, you will find Alawites, you will find Sunni, you will find Shia. This is Syria. First and foremost, Syrians are Syrians and their faith is secondary to that. Sectarianism was never really on the table until of course the West got involved and started to uh, exploit the certain sectarian divides that did exist, but were not on the surface. And so then um, you, you basically come to, let's go to 9-11, and post 9-11, when the global war on terror started and terror globally started to grow exponentially. <laughs> um, the war yeah. on terror. <laughs> yes, the war of making terror. I think that should should be what that represents. Um, and I think Piers might have touched on this, but in the emails between um, Bush and Blair post 9-11, it was made very clear that they were going to make an effort to create a different relationship with Syria. Now, what did that mean? Of course, that would mean that they would expect Syria to be compliant to US-UK policy in the Middle East. And one of the major factors um, is that they wanted to uh, pull Syria away from the Soviet Union stroke Russia, right? Because throughout its history, Syria has had a very close relationship, first of all, with the Soviet Union and then with Russia. Um, <clears throat> 
And there were various threats that were made um, that if if Syria didn't um, relieve itself of its weapons of mass destruction, it would be isolated, et cetera, et cetera. So the threats started to, to circulate then. Um, in 2006, I think it was, uh, there was an article in Time magazine, uh, Syria in Bush's crosshairs, where it was already talking about uh, the United States weaponizing insurgents in Syria to overthrow the government if deemed necessary. Um, in uh, 2009, of course, President Assad made the, the worst mistake ever, of course, I'm saying that in inverted commas, when he turned down the Qatari pipeline that had been proposed to him in 2000 in favor of the Russian-backed Iranian pipeline, which would, of course, put the power in the hands of the Shiite Muslim crescent as opposed to the Sunni Muslim crescent, which was much more allied um, to the West and to Israel. Um, and then, of course, basically, uh, Assad refused to comply with the West on a number of matters. Um, first of all, he wouldn't abandon his allies, which were effectively Iran and Hezbollah inside Syria and, of course, in Lebanon. He wouldn't abandon uh, the Palestinian cause. And going back even to 2004, Assad had, and people might not know about this, but Assad had a multipolar world vision long before we started hearing about it post-COVID, et cetera, and, and during um, the war in Ukraine, et cetera. In 2004, Assad had the five C's vision um, linking the Mediterranean, the Indian Ocean, the Red Sea, the Caspian, and the Black Sea with Syria as the hub for uh, energy transport, food transport, etc. So taking it from um, various countries in the Middle East and then sending it into Europe. So, so Assad had a very big vision. He he didn't have any connect any uh, funding from the World Bank or from the IMF. He was totally independent from a banking perspective, which again is something that the West is never very happy about. Um, and so his vision was effectively a kind of south to south trade venture on a, on a massive global scale, similar to, for example, the Umayyad dynasty back in, I think it was the sixth century or seventh century. You know, and, and this at a time when the U.S. really was was perceiving that it had a limited window of opportunity to secure, in its view, its dominance over Eurasia. And Syria was in, was absolutely pivotal to the West having control over what it calls Eurasia. Right. And of course, who was preventing it? Russia, in their view. So Syria had a huge number of elements <laughs> which um, were really not um, pleasant to the West. And in 2009, um, British authorities approached Roland Dumas, the then French foreign minister, and told him um, in two years they were going to be financing, arming, uh, and aiding and abetting the insurgents against the Syrian government. 
So as I said, it all started, there's a lot more to it as well. And I have written quite extensively about this so people can look it up. Um, but it began a very long time ago and Syria has consistently not been compliant with Western agendas, even for example, um, supporting Saddam Hussein in the second uh, Iraq Gulf War. Whereas in 1991, they agreed that Saddam Hussein had violated international law by invading um, Kuwait. Um, so, you know, uh, Syria has actually for a very long time been in the crosshairs. When you talk about the West, what is it that you are referring to? I'm talking really predominantly about the UK and the US because I tend to see the US as the muscle and the UK, as I said, as the intelligence. And then, of course, you do have um, the majority of EU countries, NATO member states. Um, and I would also include in that, I guess, the five I countries. Um, and in the case of Syria, although, of course, it's not Western and there are a lot of changes going on now, but certainly initially Qatar, Saudi Arabia, um, UAE to a lesser extent, and Israel were all involved uh, in, a, in a big way in the funding of the regime change war against Syria. Okay, so then in 2011, more specifically now, what happened? So in 2011, um, there was, as I always say, how many rebels do you know that have a kind of grad missile handy <laughs> under their bed? But the weapons had been coming in Syria for some time. The terrorists had been coming in, of course, from Libya, which was another NATO member state um, battlefield, uh, another country that had been completely destroyed and decimated and has been turned. And, you know, it went from one of the most progressive countries in Africa. And again, what was Gaddafi's vision, um, pan-Africa and pan-Arabism. So he had a foot in both camps. But again, you know, he was he was anathema to the West because he was developing uh, Libya beyond all expectations. So it had to be destroyed. Um, Iraq had already been destroyed, of course, and occupied um, by the US predominantly, but by the UK also. Um, and so in 2011, the CIA and MI6 were basically training um, insurgents in Turkey. They were coming in from Libya. Weapons were coming in from Libya and from Jordan. Um, Qatar, Red Crescent was also sending money in. There, there was weapons, money, terrorists coming in through uh, the majority of the borders with Syria. Um, including, of course, through UN convoys, as was shown by Serena Shem, the press TV journalist who was murdered, uh, or very probably murdered. It's never been properly investigated um, by Turkish intelligence after she revealed the fact that World Food Programme lorries were bringing in weapons and terrorists and Syria. Um, and so the first of the so-called peaceful protests started and um, you know again a very familiar blueprint we heard that the uh, Assad regime quoting BBC and CNN was cracking down on peaceful protest the reality was that the majority of the deaths and injuries in the first six months were among the security forces and the police forces 
the majority of the narratives were proven to be false, um, including, you know, I think the, the children, the child that had been, who's, uh, I've forgotten his name now, it'll come back to me in a minute, um, who had allegedly been tortured. His own parents came out and said that the story was not true. Um, but of course, as with every lie, it travels a lot faster than the truth that follows after it. And so um, Western media had sort of um, really got a head start. Of course, the BBC had been planning much of this from 2004 onwards. Um, they had effectively identified opposition members, people who could be influenced uh, to turn against the Syrian government, etc. Um, and so that's really where it all began, and it escalated pretty quickly. The war in Syria began in 2011 when peaceful protests calling for greater democratic freedoms, Vanessa, and an end to government corruption erupted in the southern city of, uh, how do I say this? Darar, is it? Darar, okay. Dara. Yeah. The, the Assad regime responded with violent crackdowns on protesters, sparking a broader uprising that quickly spread to other parts of the country. That's the official story. Mm. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the craziest thing is, is that Assad actually met the majority of the demands of the so-called reformists very early on. Um, and that was sort of uh, evidence almost immediately to Syrians on the ground because there was a lot of confusion in the beginning. A lot of Syrians were watching, for example, Qatari-funded uh, Al Jazeera, and Al Jazeera spent billions on uh, producing the narratives to demonize and criminalize the Syrian government Right, very early on. Um, the protests were largely uh, manufactured, and of course there was no media coverage of the millions that came out on the streets in support of President Assad. I think it was Jonathan Steele, one of the few remaining good journalists at the time at The Guardian, who wrote an article um, just basically saying, you know, Assad is so popular in Syria and the West is not saying anything. John Rosenthal, another journalist, um, I think he wrote in 2016 how his articles were basically being completely censored because he was going against the stream of narratives that were criminalizing the Syrian government. Um, the security forces themselves, including the army, were not allowed to carry weapons to the protests, at least for the first six months. So they were actually getting picked off by protesters who were armed um, and who were sniping them from roofs, et cetera. And again, we'd, you know, we'd seen very familiar um, scenes, even in uh, Odessa, where snipers were picking off both sides to create a sort of, um, you know, a false um, uh, war paradigm, really. And, um, Stories that I were told uh, was told in Latakia on the coastal region, for example, when the protests first began and the fire brigades uh, were in attendance at the protests themselves just to keep the peace. And they were being attacked and they were being stabbed, they were being shot at, they were being stoned, they were uh, encircled in their own 
uh, fire brigade compound for a few days. They weren't able to leave because it was too dangerous. Um, soldiers who were taken by the crowds and whose body was dismembered and sent back to uh, his mother in a plastic bag. You know, none of this was, was talked about ever. And then, and, um, when was it? In, it? Because up until 2013, what they basically did, I don't know if you know of an organization called Avaz. I mean, it's the biggest kind of Soros-connected um, public uh, influencer um, made up of Harvard and Yale uh, protégés and so on, you know. And Avaz were responsible for the Smuggle Hope campaign, but Avaz, which effectively gathered $2 million, I think it was, for um, terrorists and extremists inside Syria that at that time were being described as democratic rebels. And um, Avaz established a platform called Bambuser, and Bambuser was really where all of these so-called citizen journalists working hand-in-hand -hand with the various um, extremist groups, at that point um, dominated really by the Free Syrian Army, but very early on the Free Syrian Army was seen collaborating with ISIS, which of course then was... Um, the terrorist group that the U.S. used as a pretext to um, to install their military footprint inside Syria. Um, and so basically all these citizen journalists were uploading their material to, to this Bambuser platform and then CNN and BBC and all of these other media organizations were taking their footage from there. But what they didn't tell you, of course, is they were taking the, all the footage and they were only using like 2% of it. What they weren't using was the dress rehearsal and the laughter afterwards when they produced their, their little cameo for uh, CNN and so on. And of course, this was pretty much rumbled by a Syrian journalist called Rafiq Lutuf, um, with whom I made a documentary about all of this, uh, you know, absolutely. I mean, it was pure theater and it was exposed. And so therefore, from 2013 onwards, um, the UK got much more involved in the manipulation of the media. They started to create organizations like the White Helmets and various other organizations that were embedded with the terrorist groups and who were then providing one plausible deniability, but two, were able to produce the propaganda from on the ground without using this very shoddy platform, which had clearly been exposed to be producing um, dramatic narratives that were completely false. What is the reality right now in Syria? Oh, <laughs> the reality right now... Um, is that Syria is occupied on the majority of its borders um, by hostile states. In the northwest, as I said, it's under the control of Al-Qaeda, which is effectively a US-UK asset in Syria and always has been, not only in Syria, of course, also in Afghanistan, um, in Africa, and so on. You know, Al-Qaeda is the US asset, despite its global war on terror. Um, in the north, you also have Turkey, which is backing um, really the Muslim Brotherhood factions, which were formerly uh, the Free Syrian Army. 
in the northeast it's occupied by the US so from the Euphrates to the east um, you have US occupation formerly there was also ISIS occupation ISIS is also a proxy of the US um, I can come back to that afterwards um, right now of course it's the Kurdish uh, separatists the Kurdish Contras that are looking to create an autonomous region in the northeast supported by Victoria Newland, who was also behind um, the coup in uh, Ukraine in, in Kiev in 2014. So the cookie monster is back in northeast Syria. In the southeast, um, the US has one of the largest military bases in Syria at Al-Tanaf, and it also controls Rukban refugee camp, which is a recruitment center for armed groups. Around Rukban camp and Altanev, there is a 55-kilometer exclusion zone imposed by the U.S. on Syrian territory, um, in which they are training uh, armed groups, terrorist armed groups, in the use of artillery like HIMARS that have a 250-kilometer range. So from there, they can effectively um, target Damascus. And in the south, of course, you have uh, the annexation of the Golan territories by Israel. Lebanon is um, obviously probably one of the few friendly countries, although Jordan has now opened its borders again with Syria. They were previously closed before 2018. Um, but Lebanon, of course, has been put into economic uh, free fall, which has also had a knock-on effect on Syria because many Syrians put their money into Lebanon when the war started in Syria. Um, we're under, uh, as I said, some of the most unprecedented uh, savage sanctions. Um, we're effectively blockaded in Syria. Um, the U.S. is also occupying oil. It's burning agricultural crops, it's stealing wheat and barley and other agricultural resources and exporting them outside Syria. Um, and since the earthquake, of course, many more uh, Syrians have been displaced but are still under sanctions. And while the West is claiming um, that the sanctions don't impact on humanitarian sectors, of course they do. We can't transfer money inside Syria. I can't use my credit cards. I can't. I can't do any financial uh, transactions inside Syria. Why? None. Because of sanctions, the the Bank of Syria is under sanctions. So there is absolutely no way people can't transfer money to me in Syria from outside. So I'm completely oh. reliant on really? people going out and coming back with cash. <laughs> And that's wow. how most people here live. So there's no way of sending you money. Perhaps, no. uh, what about something like Bitcoin? Nope. We're not set up for Bitcoin. I and mean, we don't even have, you know, we don't even have ATMs working right now. No, there's nothing. My goodness. Nothing, nothing. You know, and, and, and people don't actually realize it. it's a cash, it's a total cash economy because, um, and, and of course, me as a foreigner living here, it's 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 much more difficult for the Syrian people, but it's still a lot of juggling because I have to hope that friends of mine are, are going out and coming back, and then I can send them money for them to bring the cash back into Syria. I shouldn't really say this because I'll probably get sanctioned now, but um, <laughs> um, 
No, I mean, the sanctions are absolutely crippling. Sanctions are slow death. I mean, they're way more insidious than actually a military war. And people might think I'm crazy to say that. But when Syrians were living through daily um, mortar attacks and, and explosive bullet attacks, somehow they had a reason to live when the military war stopped and then they're faced with the economic depression and downturn um th there's no hope there's nothing to live for right um and so as i said it's a slow death suicide is on the increase the medical sector is of course it's affected because with the us occupying oil and stealing 80 percent of that oil there's no electricity, there's no fuel, there's no uh, generator fuel, there's no um, heating fuel. Um, so electricity, for example, I'm quite well off. I have four and a half hours off and one and a half hours on. So I'm doing okay. But for example, in the next suburb to me, they only get about an hour a day and that can be 15 minutes here, 30 minutes here. So, you know, people, can't they can't get water to the tanks on the roof during um the hot summers here which are just about to start in the winter they can't heat um the food prices are, are, are going absolutely sky high <clears throat> um and salaries have remained the same so people now with inflation are earning around 20 dollars a month on average Wow. Yeah. And, and most people don't understand that, that this is, um, you know, this is really what the West is doing. You know, we, we know from the sanctions on Iraq that killed hundreds of thousands of children. We know from the sanctions on Yemen that are supposedly against seven named individuals and yet are blockading. 23 million Yemenis and depriving them of medical treatment, etc. You know, sanctions are designed to kill. They are designed to be unilateral. They are designed to reduce sovereign nations to the dark ages, where in theory, the people will rise up against their government, etc. But, you know, 12 years in, Syria has proven it's not going to do that. May 2021 election, they voted Assad back in. It wasn't about voting for Assad. It was about telling the West it's irrelevant. And, and this is what people don't understand. It, it, it doesn't, you know, whatever the world has done to Syria, it's not going to change its mind. It's not going to suddenly go, oh, okay, we'll have a Muslim Brotherhood government and, you know, we'll ally ourselves with Israel. If Israel started and it is escalating, if it starts a war now, every single Syrian in this country starving or otherwise will take up arms against Israel. That's what, you know, that's what the West underestimates. It underestimates um, the strength and resilience of these people. Who, who did you say uh, supports Syria geopolitically? Um, <clears throat> so when the earthquake happens, um, the and God forgive me if I forget any of them, um, the countries that basically came to the aid of Syria were Algeria, Tunisia, United Arab Emirates, uh, China, Russia, of course, Iran, uh, Armenia, 
uh, Germany actually sent, I think it was two or three planes of aid, and that was purely down to uh, a Syrian doctor who's a good friend of mine. He's a German citizen. He came and he actually pointed out to the German government and the German media that there was absolutely no German humanitarian aid on the ground in Syria, in particular in Aleppo. Um, Italy did send some aid in, which I think came in through Beirut, so it didn't come in directly, so it, it sort of bypassed the sanctions. Lebanon uh, sent aid in. Um, Jordan, uh, I know I'm going to forget some. Venezuela, Yemen. I mean, God bless Yemen. You know, Yemen has to be just one of the worst humanitarian cases in history, and yet Yemen managed to send aid through its embassy here in Damascus. Just extraordinary. Um, so yeah, there were a huge number of countries uh, that came to the aid of Syria, but of course the majority of them non-aligned. Vanessa, why Syria? Why Assad? <clears throat> Um, I think, I mean, I pointed out the, the Five Cs project, the Belt and Road Initiative, of course, uh, Assad was, uh, or, or Syria was instrumental to the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. So that combined with the Five Cs project was threatening to uh, create really this multipolar world that is being talked about now. And that is, of course, um, as I've said before, you know, it's, it's, everything that the US doesn't want. It doesn't want to empower sovereign nations. It wants to weaken sovereign nations in order to pillage and plunder. You know, it's, it's, its policy is based on pure piracy. And the fact that um, the US in particular wanted to be in Syria to take Syrian oil was made very clear by a number of US officials, including Diana Struhl, including President Trump himself, um, this was made very clear from the very beginning. Um, and then, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the Syrian alliance with the resistance axis, so that includes Iran, Hezbollah, even Iraq. Now in Iraq, you have Hashid al-Shabi, which is perceived, again, as an Iranian proxy. But in reality, it's a secular militia that has been fighting um, ISIS since ISIS was introduced in Iraq. Uh, and I mentioned the fact that ISIS is a US um, proxy. Yes. Um, well, this was admitted by John Kerry uh, in 2016 in September in a closed session in the UN, where he basically said that ISIS was allowed to flourish in order to empower it to overthrow the Syrian government. The weapons that came in supposedly under the train and equip program that was established by President Obama um, strangely and miraculously fell into the hands of uh, ISIS terrorists as opposed to being given to the 500 rebels that they were supposedly arming and equipping <laughs> under the program that Trump, I think, then abolished. Um, you know, ISIS was known to have traveled uh, hundreds of kilometers under the noses of the United States uh, and their allies, including the UK, and of course they weren't targeted. Um, a couple of instances that I know about and that I actually um, reported on, and and to some I didn't witness the massacres, but 
um, I did go to the regions and speak to people afterwards in 2016. Um, the Syrian Arab army was uh, on the verge of liberating Deir Zor in the northeast from uh, the ISIS siege. And as they advanced to Al Thawra mountain, um, the US, the UK, Denmark and Australia, a strange collection of countries, bombed the Syrian army positions by mistake and basically allowed ISIS to um, take the strategic mountain back from the Syrian Arab army and killing more than 100 Syrian Arab army soldiers and strafing the survivors with machine guns uh, afterwards, but it was a mistake. Um, and then in 2018, ISIS terrorists uh, attacked a number of villages uh, in the southeast of Syria, again, under the protection of the US, massacred over uh, 300 civilians um, and injured dozens more, um, but were actually beaten back by the civilians themselves um, with reinforcements from the Syrian Arab army. But again, they, they sought protection from uh, the US camp at Al-Tanef. Um, so, uh, and, and now the US is effectively under the, con under con sorry, has control of 15,000 ISIS fighters in the Northeast that it is constantly ferrying from Syria to Iraq and back to Syria again. Um, and is releasing in small brigades to attack Russian and Syrian positions. So it's very clear, certainly to us here, that um, ISIS is under the control of the US and the UK. And actually, since the earthquake, ISIS has carried out, I think, at least three attacks against civilians, massacring up to 50 each time and taking dozens prisoners. So ISIS is just another US proxy here in Syria. Um, so the whole pretext of being in Syria um, to fight ISIS is, is a bit of an in-joke in Syria. <laughs> I'm guessing the devastation over the last decade or so has been pretty severe. Do you see Syria recovering anytime soon at least? <sighs> um, under sanctions, it's very difficult. Because as I said, the Caesar sanctions are actually punitive sanctions against any country that will come to the aid of Syria. So any country that is effectively trying to establish economic or trade relations with Syria post-war um, is, is doing it on the basis that they're terrified of being hit with Western sanctions. And so what that means, they might be doing it kind of under the table, but the taxes and so on are incredibly high for Syria because you know, it's considered a high risk, high risk environment from a sanction, sanction perspective. Um, and is Syria, I mean, I think now what we're seeing, of course, is um, Syria is emerging from a geopolitical perspective. I mean, you've had the recent state visits by President Assad to Moscow. Um, to UAE, which was quite incredible. I mean, the fact that Assad's plane was escorted into the, the UAE uh, runway by UAE fighter jets, which are probably American anyway, <laughs> was the ultimate irony. And that he landed in the middle of, I don't know how many, I think it's something like 10 American bases 
plus the nest of American and UK intelligence operatives that operate out of uh, UAE was, was just extraordinary. And yes, the UAE was operating outside the sphere of influence of the UK and the US. That was confirmed to me by uh, sources here in Syria. So this wasn't some kind of elaborate plan by intelligence agencies in the UK and US. Um, and then Saudi Arabia is reopening its embassy in Syria um, at the end of April, beginning of May. Um, there's now the Turkish, Iranian, uh, Syrian, and Russian um, meetings in Moscow to try and encourage the rapprochement between President Assad and President Erdogan. But Syria is making it very clear that they will only um, have the meeting with Erdogan after he has fulfilled all of the assurances that Syria is looking for, which means total withdrawal from Syria, total withdrawal from annexed uh, territory, and return of Syrian territorial integrity to pre-2011. And unless Erdogan agrees to all of that, then they're not going to give him the PR um, victory pre-Turkish elections of meeting with President Assad. So there are, you know, there are a number of, let's say, lights at the end of the tunnel, which are suggesting that um, the meeting, for example, between uh, China and Russia has had a knock-on effect on the non-aligned nations, and that now they're, they're, they're realizing that they need to align themselves with what they perceive to be the stable axis, whereas the West seems to be kind of spinning out of control completely um, from almost every perspective. Do you think Washington is panicking? Yes. Yes, because... In the Northeast, even, I mean, there was a recent attack by Syrian allied forces, which do include um, Iranian and Iraqi, Iraqi militia. There were attacks on U.S. bases. A number of U.S. servicemen um, had traumatic brain injuries. Ones that we heard about after Trump had Soleimani and Mohandes assassinated, and there was an attack um, by Iran on the Ain al-Assad uh, base uh, in Iraq. Uh, and so there's been an exchange of fire between uh, the Syrian alliance and the US. And Israel is kind of upping the ante, of course. There's been, I think now, five or six attacks since the earthquake. Uh, they targeted Damascus International Airport, which is majority civilian airport, Aleppo International Airport, which was the humanitarian lifeline after the earthquake. And more recently, in the last three or four days, they've carried out three attacks on Damascus, Homs, on Israel. various air defense. Yes. And nobody knows about it because no one's reporting on it. <laughs> And I mean, where I live, you hear the missiles coming in. So you hear the winged missiles coming in um, whenever they attack. And the fact that they've carried out um, attacks on two consecutive nights, they waited one night and then attacked again. So they're basically attacking Syrian defense capability. But they also, um, as a result of attacks on US bases in the Northeast, they did attack civilian 
residential areas in Damascus. So Israel um, is imploding right now. So what is it looking to do? It's looking to externalize the war. And it has also been provoking Syria for some time. And I know people are always saying, why doesn't Syria retaliate? Because Syria right now can't afford to open up a war on a new front without its resources. It has to regain its resources before it has the capability of really um, escalating to, a, to an intense conflict with Israel in the region. Although uh, Israel's probably in the most vulnerable state it's been in all of its existence, its illegal existence, um, in the sense that it now has uh, Iran, Yemen, Hezbollah, Hashad al-Shabi in Iraq. So it knows it's not just picking on Syria, it's picking on the entire uh, resistance axis. It now has armed insurgents, similar to the uh, intifadas now in the occupied territories, and even Gaza now has far more sophisticated weapons at its disposal than it had before. Um, so Israel is, is vulnerable. Uh, and I think if I had to predict anything, I would say that at some point there is going to be an escalation of conflict with Israel. I think it's almost unavoidable. But then Assad can just do what the media uh, says he's very good at and just use chemical weapons and kill his own people. Oh, I mean, C CNN, CNN doesn't lie, Vanessa. No, only for a living. <laughs> um, well, I mean, you had Piers, Piers Robinson on, and I'm sure he went into huge detail about the whole OPCW case. And, you know, CNN doesn't lie, but I'm sure it told you that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. I'm sure it told you that Gaddafi's troops were, you know, running Viagra-crazed rape programs uh, in Benghazi. I'm sure it told you that women's rights were at the foremost of US policy in Afghanistan. I mean, the list is endless, right? Um, and I'm sure it's not making anything up at all in Ukraine and Donbass, and it's not ignoring the 2014 coup at all or the atrocities committed against the people in Donbass. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, CNN would, would also have you believe that I, as a white South African, I have black slaves. <laughs> Of course you do. <laughs> That's a given. So there's a question here. Do the Syrians use the US dollar to any extent? And if so, how will the impending collapse of the petrodollar impact Syria? Um, that's a good question. Yes, it's interesting because there's a big comparison between Lebanon and Syria. Okay, and Lebanon, inflation is absolutely insane. I mean, when I first started coming to Lebanon and Syria, it was 500 uh, Lebanese lira to $1. Now it's 130,000 Lebanese lira to $1. And it's going up, like, you know, exponentially. In Syria, it was around the same when I first started coming. So around 500 Syrian pounds to the dollar. It's now at 7,000. And it's been pretty stable at around 6,000, 7,000 for a couple of years, despite the, the massive kind of economic downturn. And I think part of that is because 
Lebanon is effectively a dollar economy. Everywhere you go, you pay in dollars. You pay cash and you pay in dollars. Here, you pay in Syrian pounds, right? There is a black market for um, exchanging dollars for Syrian pounds, but now the Syrian bank has come almost level with the black market. Before, there was quite a big gap, so the black market was obviously more attractive um, than, than going through the Syrian bank. So now they've, they've kind of leveled it out. Um, and so I don't actually think um, if the dollar were to crash, I don't think Syria would be that badly affected. The only, I guess the only thing would be there's a lot of people, there's a lot of Syrians in diaspora that are sending money back to families in Syria, and that's what's keeping them alive, basically. Um, but having said that, you know, if it switches to rubles or yuan, then Syria is well placed from that perspective, anyway. So no, I don't think that's a big threat to Syria. And I'm um, guessing BRICS is friendly towards Syria. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, Syria is, you know. Um, its relationships with members uh, of BRICS is, has always historically been very friendly. Um, and China and Russia really are the primary allies of Syria and have been since 2011 and even before 2011. Uh, Russia has one of its biggest uh, external military bases uh, on the Mediterranean coast in Syria and of course that will be expanding. Um, it was there for 50, 60 years before 2011. So it's not as if Russia has, you know, um, capitalized on the conflict to, to set up its military bases, which of course is what the US does regularly, as in Africa, AFRICOM fighting terrorism, terrorism, of course, that's been created by the US in, in Libya and Syria and um, Afghanistan and Yemen, and it is now being exported into Africa for the new front against Russia and China. But no, of course, they only have their military bases there to fight terrorism, not to plunder and pillage and take Africa resources for nothing. I'm sure that's just another little conspiracy theory there. How many people have left Syria? Oof, um, a lot, a lot. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but for example, in Aleppo, just to give you an indication, um, Aleppo is the industrial um, heart of Syria. There were probably, I think, more than 100,000 Armenian Christians, for example, um, in Aleppo. There's now around 20,000. So that just gives you an indication. And of course, why? Not because, <laughs> not because President Assad was personally barrel bombing them, but no, because the terrorists, of course, are sectarian extremists and therefore Christians, all uh, religious minorities, were considered to be um, non-compliant to their religious ideology and were therefore targeted for massacre. Um, so that includes Christians, it, it includes anyone that doesn't comply with their um, Wahhabist ideology basically. So the numbers I don't know for sure, but six million were internally um, displaced and it, what people always forget to tell you when they talk about six million people were displaced 
they actually left homes that were occupied by the terrorist groups and moved into areas that were under government protection. Right. You know, that, that's always left out of that narrative. It's just six million people displaced because they're sad. No, <laughs> those people actually moved into areas that were still under government protection or Syrian Arab army protection. Do you feel safe living there as a foreigner? Are you, I mean, are the people warm towards you? Oh, God. Syrians, I mean, I, I honestly, if people, if you can come to Syria, come to Syria, because the hospitality, despite all of the hardship, all of the suffering, and the, you know, it is, it's always below the surface, but the hospitality and the generosity of the people is legendary. Um, and when you ask if I feel safe, even at the height of the war, even when I was really in some pretty hot zones, and Eva Bartlett will say the same thing, I never wore, for example, um, what do you call them? A flak uh, vest. I never wore a helmet. Um, we always went in the front lines, sort of pretty much unprotected from that perspective. Um, but I never felt unsafe because the Syrian Arab army always took care of us. And they didn't only take care of us. They took care of BBC journalists. They took care of CNN journalists. They took care of Sky News journalists because that was their job. And again, that's something that is not mentioned when they put themselves between uh, a sniper and a BBC journalist. That BBC journalist will not shake their hand. They will go back to the UK, back to London and report on the brutality of the Syrian Arab army. Right. This was what was so utterly reprehensibly criminal for me was this complete misrepresentation of what was going on inside Syria. And the Syrian Arab army is the Syrian people. It's a conscript army. Right. And certainly as the war progressed, um, it became more and more so. As, as you probably know, I'm a political cartoonist of almost 20 years and I've got books published and I've got cartoons that I drew of Assad and they, are not, and they are not kind and I wouldn't yeah. draw them now and I it's the strangest thing it's part of my history it is what it is but mm. it just shows that perhaps I am a victim of western propaganda well I mean it's very easy to be I mean there were many actually because um for example, the Palestinian movement was prepared in advance to be weaponized against Syria. Um, and because of the instrumental Muslim Brotherhood's role in the destabilization of Syria, a lot of the Palestine movements were confused and were actually supporting regime change well into 2016, 2017, until you know, they realized shit, we've been wrong, right? And, and then they flipped and then they started to understand better what was going on. And the whole uh, Palestinian question was, was also used, for example, in Yarmouk camp. But what people don't understand, if they remember all, all the propaganda narratives surrounding Yarmouk camp, was that the Muslim Brotherhood, i.e. Hamas, were actually allowing Al-Qaeda, which is also pretty much Muslim Brotherhood, to enter the camp and murder their own people. 
And the Syrian Arab army was surrounding it, which was their typical strategy to surround it, to try and provide humanitarian corridors to get people out while starving the terrorists to force them to come out, right? That was their strategy. There's no other way they could do it. They can't bomb urban areas that contain Syrian civilians, whether they're Palestinian, whether, the, you know, whatever denomination they are, they're Syrian. And remember, Syria is the one country that gave Palestinians that fled during the Nakba in 1948, they gave them uh, citizenship. Sorry, they gave them residency, not citizenship, because they, they withheld citizenship because they wanted them to have the right to return. But they gave them residency and they gave them all the same rights as the Syrian people. And there are Palestinian brigades fighting alongside the Syrian Arab army, particularly in Aleppo. Um, but, you know, a lot of people were confused over Syria. A lot of people have been confused over COVID. A lot of people have been confused um, over Ukraine. But the problem is, is that people kind of think, oh, I've got it. I've got it sus now. You know, I know what's going on. But when COVID happened, everyone kind of lost their minds a little bit. And no one saw that what their governments were doing to them was exactly what they'd been doing to countries in the global south for, for decades. No one made that connection. So people tend to compartmentalize events, right? And, and they don't make the connection, the historical connections between all of these events. And Syria and Russia and China and all these countries are intrinsically connected. And they're connected to the detriment of the US and the UK and a large part of the EU. And so for that reason, um, those connections should be made, but people aren't making them. And, you know, when you're when you're faced with um, humanitarian propaganda on the scale that it was being produced in Syria, it's very hard to kind of stick your head over the parapet and say, no, it's complete bullshit. It, it's quite difficult to do. I guess my rule of thumb is you just have to assume that everything that is being produced by Western mainstream media or state-aligned media outlets or, as I say, extensions of intelligence and security agencies um, is a lie, or at least it is only protecting the policy of its government. And when I talk about government, I'm not talking about whether it's Republican, Democrat, I'm talking about who's behind, who's the power behind the government, whoever it is. You know, I think we need to stop as, as human beings, we need to stop thinking left and right, Democrat, Republican, we need to start realizing um, that the enemy within is what we're fighting, right? And they are in charge of the media. So the, the media is manipulating you. You know, Britain, for example, is, is the world uh, expert in behavioral insight, um, public opinion manipulation and influencing. Um, and there were the Foreign Office document leaks a couple of years ago that demonstrated the extent to which MI6 uh, and British media outlets were being used to support and promote the armed groups inside uh, Syria that were committing some of the most horrendous. If I told you some of the crimes that were committed by these groups inside Syria against human beings, against Syrians, 
that are never talked about in Western media, ever. Um, it, it's off the scale. I mean, you're seeing some of it come out more now um, in Ukraine, for example, by the Nazi battalions and so on. You're hearing more about it now. But in Syria, some of the crimes that were committed, particularly early on when there was no media coverage of what the armed groups were doing, um, it was absolutely horrendous. And this is what, you know, if, if our governments are capable of allowing this to happen in their name and they're funding it, they're arming it, they're equipping it, they're, they're, they're promoting it, then they're capable of anything. And so I think, you know, I, it's just, it's a matter of trust. You have to stop trusting them. You have to stop thinking that they have our best interests at heart or that they have the best interests of any one single human being in the world today at heart. They don't. And their media is just mirroring what they want them to produce, what they, you know, what they want to implant in our minds and in our brains. Um, and I think it's, it's not, an, you know, I've got used to it, but I just assume now that almost everything they're saying, even historically, is not true. Every, even if I used to think something, as you just said, you know, I go back and I check it all out now because I don't believe, I don't even believe the history I was taught at school anymore about everything, anything. Yes. <laughs> yes, I, I, seem to, I, I seem to feel the same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, a, um, it's not a bad place to be because... And, you know, it's nothing to do with conspiracy theorism and all of this nonsense that they try and dismiss it as. It's about informing yourself. It's about educating yourself to the point where you feel comfortable with your conclusions. And it doesn't mean that you have to agree with me or I have to agree with you, but, you know, it, it should at least be a debate or an informed discussion not just based on Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch or any of the other kind of revolving door CIA agencies. <laughs> uh, just on that conspiracy theory um, notion, it's a term that constantly gets thrown around now, particularly throughout this COVID project. It's an absolutely <laughs> Monty Python-esque, absurdly ridiculous term. I mean, yeah, exactly. do, do, do people not conspire? <laughs> Well, I mean, of course they do, but it's all of this terminology. I mean, mm. you know, if, if you defended, uh, if you defended Syria, not even President Assad, it's not about one man. You know, if President Assad had this, oh, electricity just went off. Sorry, one second. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> LED lights. Um, if, if, just proving my point. If um, Assad had disappeared in 2012, the people would have kept fighting because they're not prepared to have um, their secular society destroyed. They're not prepared to have their culture and civilization destroyed, um, their heritage, their, their identity, you know. And, um, but of course, 
whenever you defended Syria or even you defended the Syrian army or you talked about something that was happening that was not being um, produced in Western media, you became an Assadist. Or, of course, you become a Kremlin agent if you're talking about Donbass and you're talking about Nazis in Ukraine and you're talking about the history of the conflict in Ukraine. Um, or you become, if you talk about, well, what about this, you become a whataboutist. You know, all of this terminology is designed to kind of ridicule and smear and discredit anyone that, as you said, is pointing out um, the, the very real conspiracies. I mean, 9-11, mm. for heaven's sake. You know, no, no, I mean, no, no. It was just random. It was just no, spontaneous. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that's the thing. They're forever conspiring against us. And, um, you know, just because you point that out, you become a conspiracy theorist. That's the funny thing about it, you know. It's not a, a conspiracy factist or what I, I don't know. I can't think of an alternative. Realist, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So no, I mean, all these terms just are, are meaningless to me these days. In your mind, what is required for, oh, I don't know, uh, prosperity and independence, I guess, for Syria? Oof. Um, I think, first of all, there are a number of protests going on globally um, for end the siege and the sanctions on Syria. Um, that's a movement that kind of started up after the earthquake. Um, and I would highly encourage people to join any movements. They're happening literally in every um, you know, capital city in, across the world, including the US, UK, and so on. Um, do what you can to campaign for the US to get out of Syria, because the US occupation, even with sanctions, the, the Syrians could survive if the US stopped occupying Syrian oil and Syrians could once again use uh, their resources um, and you know the rise of China and Russia and BRICS and the non-aligned uh, alliance is incredibly important for countries like Syria um, because what does it mean? It means uh, a respectful international paradigm that has never really existed since the US came into existence, hasn't. Um, and, you know, the pivot to the east for Syria is, is heaven. Because if there were no US or there was a very weakened US, um, <coughs> you know, the multipolar world becomes a reality. And for Syria, that was always Syria's vision. That was always the vision under both Hafez al-Assad and Bashar al-Assad. It was the vision of many African leaders, the vision of many uh, Middle Eastern leaders. And we're slightly seeing it. I mean, I sort of put out a tweet tonight. Um, it would be kind of ironic if pan-Arabism is the result of the West's decades of wars to prevent pan-Arabism. Because we are now seeing um, the inclusion of Syria quite possibly back in the Arab League and so on and so forth. Saudi Arabia is back in, UAE is back in, um, Jordan, uh, 
possibly Erdogan will start playing ball. So there is there are big shifts coming. Um, it all depends on what the U.S. does in response. And and I think now it is a desperate entity. And of course, when a beast is cornered, it becomes most dangerous. Do you think NATO is on life support? <laughs> That's a good. <laughs> I would rather it was flatlining, but yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! I mean, really, the whole lot needs to be completely dismantled. Really, you know, the EU, the, the all of it. Um, and you know what we're seeing now happening in France is is certainly, I mean, hats off to France for what they're doing. It's quite incredible. I mean, I was in the protests in 2019, um, and the brutality of the police back then was extraordinary. It was off the scale. I hadn't seen something like that, not even here or in Palestine. Mm. Um, so. Yeah, we're living in very interesting times. Just for clarity, Vanessa, mm. when when we speak about the West, we aren't talking about the people on the ground. We're talking about the elite or the oligarchy. Yes, for sure. Although um, I would say that I wish the people in these countries would empower themselves a little bit more. Um, and educate themselves on what their countries are actually doing, what, what the globalists are doing in their name, basically. You know, in two, when was it? In 2003, the, the, you know, the millions that went out on the street to protest the war against Iraq. Okay, it didn't stop it, but at least there was um, a desire to prevent it. We've seen the more recent... Um, anti-war rallies, for example, in the US. There needs to be a lot more of that. You know, people really do start need to be, need to start taking responsibility for what is being done by their governments. And it, as I said, it doesn't matter if it's Democrat or Republican. So don't bring the argument down to Trump or Biden because it's not about that. You know, Trump's roadmap in Syria was really no different to Obama's or to or to Biden's. He just did it in a slightly different way. But he he assassinated two of the greatest resistance leaders. Um, he burned Syrian crops. He introduced the Caesar law. You know, it, it's it's the same roadmap, and that's what we've got to be protesting. Do you think Biden can spell Syria? No. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> oh, where did we just bomb? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> he can smell oil, though. He can smell it and spell it. You're standing on the battleground of the information war and you're looking out at the horizon. What is it that you see? Uh, information war? Gosh, that's that's taken me off guard. Um, I think, really, from my perspective, 
I think it has to be down to individual responsibility. I think every single individual is responsible for educating themselves and informing themselves. I'm not anybody special, right? I have huge gaps in my knowledge and my education um, that I'm still trying to, to fill. So if I'm capable of doing it, everybody is capable of doing it. It's just a question of um, really empowering yourself to do it and actually realizing the importance of doing it and, and to, to break out of this gaslighting um, chamber that we're all in, you know, and recognize the fact that you do have a rationale, you do have a logic, you are capable of figuring things out. Um, you know, and, and to some degree, I, I would love to see that we become almost kind of, um, surplus to requirements when people are actually really educating and informing themselves you know then then i don't know then it just becomes you know social media has been uh, it's been an important weapon on one hand on the other hand i do believe it's kind of dumb people down um and and people these days barely read beyond uh, sorry, I am generalizing here, but many people don't read belong beyond the headlines. And I think we have to almost go back to the good old days when there was no TV and there was no um, distractions going on and when people actually had the time to research. Mm. Um, so I guess, you know, I, I, that's how I look at it. I think everyone should be the media police. <laughs> How can I follow you and your work? Oh, thank you. Um, mostly on Substack these days. Uh, Substack and Patreon, Twitter, and my Telegram. Okay, a bit more detail. Oh, <laughs> well, Vanessa B. Lee on Substack, Vanessa B. Lee on Telegram, and Vanessa B. Lee on Twitter. And I still have a YouTube channel intact also. Oh, wow. You're Surprisingly, <laughs> it's been shut down a few times and then given back to me, you know, like some kind of holy grail, but um, it's still going, but it doesn't have a huge following. What has your Twitter experience been like? Were you one of those who, who, who was banned? Mm, I think I was banned for about 24 hours at one point. Um, but no, I wasn't one of the Elon, Elon Musk, um, what is the word? kind of pardons. No, I wasn't. Vanessa Beattie, thank you for joining me in the trenches. No, I thank you so much for having me on. It was a real pleasure. My name is Jim. This is Jim Wolfey, The Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.